Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. After a decade in power, party and state leader Xi Jinping has fundamentally reshaped China's political economy in pursuit of the Chinese Communist Party's long-term goal, to return to a strong and prosperous China at the heart of the global economy. The impact is visible in the domestic economy, as the party expands its control over businesses to align them with national strategic priorities. Internationally, China's relationship with the liberal market economies is moving from global integration to intense competition. My name is Johannes Heller-Jon, and as the CCP approaches the 2023 Third Plenum, an event which will give important indications on the future of China's economy, my colleague Christina Krüger is talking to Brad Hoffman, Director of the East Asian Institute at the National University of Singapore and Senior Associate Fellow at Merricks, and Jacob Gunter, a Lead Analyst in the Economy Program at Merricks. Jacob is also the co-author, with Merricks Chief Economist Max J. Zenglein, of a new report titled the party knows best, aligning economic actors with China's strategic goals, that analyzes the meaning of the fundamental shifts in China's economic governance that are currently unfolding. I'll let Christina take it from here. So this is another issue of our podcast, and I'm very happy that I have these two guests with me. This is one, Bert Hoffman. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And also my colleague, Jacob Gunter, analyst at Marix. Hello, Jacob. Hey, Christina. Happy to be here uh, with you and Bert. And I'm really happy to introduce my two guests now to, to you, our audience. China is increasingly following a path that aims to perfect the Chinese socialist system. The hopes of Western governments that China would become much more like themselves over time seem further away than ever. Was the West so optimistic about the reform path China would follow? I think the West was probably too optimistic about the political reform path that was possible. But importantly, a lot of the decisions that were made kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s period, thinking specifically of WTO accession, um, this was taking place under a very different generation of leadership. And if you were to take me back to that moment in time and put me in the decision-making kind of position with only the information available at that time, I probably would have made a similar, if not the same decision. But Xi Jinping comes along and really starts to deviate things um, and pulls China in a very different direction. And one where I think you know there, there are certain areas where we're going to have certain frictions between the Chinese economic model that Xi Jinping is trying to perfect and our own models here in Europe and North America and Japan and Korea and such. Some of those frictions will be manageable. Um, we might have to adapt our systems a little bit to, to kind of act almost as lubricant between those points. And other things will be sort of non-controversial, but it will require that we accept that China has moved in a certain direction and we need to adapt to that in a way that maintains our own economic edge and make sure that we can maximize our engagement on you know, positive economic fronts with China while minimizing the distortions that they're strange and different economic model generate. China has been trying to optimize the efficiency of its economic policies by embracing market forces. For example, by strengthening the role of financial markets or the little giants program, 
The latter means like highly specialized companies are supported to dominate niche markets and to develop core technologies China is lacking. How successful do you think the new measures are in improving efficient use of capital? Um, in terms of efficient use of capital, if, if the outcome that you're trying to generate is productivity and growth, I think that Xi Jinping's model is not working terribly well. But I don't think that those are Xi Jinping's goals. His, his goals are pretty clearly, from my assessment, uh, really advancing this technology self-reliance campaign, um, trying to close that technology gap that China has with the United States and its allies, and to be, to be able to create a more geopolitically resilient economy and technology chain. And so when you look at a lot of the economic data that's coming out, and when you look at, for example, the application of market forces, where market forces still exist in China, but they exist as one tool in an increasingly complex toolkit that Xi Jinping and his cadres are using to try to steer economic actors in certain directions, where certain companies are clearly given certain strategic roles, whether that's to hold up an economic baseline or to climb up global value chains and become more productive, or to help close the technology gap. And we're seeing market forces are sometimes used to encourage that. Sometimes more stick rather than carrot um, is being used to achieve that. And so from Xi Jinping's perspective, I don't think it's right to ask from kind of a Western market efficiency perspective, are things getting better? Are things improving? Because he's pursuing a very different goal. We'll, we'll see, of course, how successful he is with that and how much Chinese people and the powers that be within the system are willing to tolerate a lack of productivity gains and a lack of efficiency gains in order to achieve these more geopolitically oriented goals. But I see no sign of uh, any real pushback against Xi Jinping. So <laughs> I, I wouldn't anticipate that to change meaningfully unless something really significant happens. China has become much more innovative over the past decades, taking the lead in traditional sectors such as railway, as well as in emerging technology such as electric vehicles. It is also quickly closing in on the competition in critical sectors like AI. But at the same time, China's total factor productivity growth has been slowing. How can this be explained? Well, uh, first... Uh, total factor productivity is is something that economists like to use, and they think it has something to do with productivity, which I'm sure it has. But the link between innovation and total factor productivity is a, is a relatively weak one, and one that's not very well explained by the literature. Second, China is not the only one that has problems, i.e., the whole world basically has seen a decline in productivity growth over the past 10, 15 years. Really, the watershed was the global financial crisis. There's some reasons for that. This, the, the policy reaction to the global financial crisis has been a loosening of policies all around the world. And that means that even companies that would normally under normal competitive circumstances with tight liquidity would go out of business. Now they don't. China has an additional problem. Because China, yes, it's a socialist market economy, but in that the socialism plays at every level and local governments, if you want, they compete with other local governments to attract businesses, to support their businesses to, for reasons of employment, for reasons of tax revenues, for reasons of performance within the party system. And they like to keep companies alive. So there's a lot of support for companies in all kinds of ways. And it means that a lot of inefficient companies, they don't exit the system. 
that's quite different from the rest. So even if you're at the top level, you're quite innovative. If, if a lot of inefficient companies remain within the system, it doesn't translate as well into, into those productivity gains. There's a second element. Uh, yes, China has been very impressive in terms of spending on R&D and innovative capacity as measured by Repo and others in terms of patents production and uh, scientific articles production. But the weakness is, also, is still in the dissemination of that throughout the economy. And again, there the structure of the economy plays a role. In the West, you have to adopt the latest technology. Otherwise, you're going to be out of business. You're going to lose profitability. And in the end, you have to close down. That pressure seems to be less in China. So those are two explanations that make it for China more difficult to translate, if you want, research and development and technology into productivity gains. He has emphasized common prosperity, yet there seems little interest in building a welfare state. What kind of new social contract is emerging under he? Uh, so I think that's still a big debate. And at first, when the term was re-upped, it's an old term. It's, it's a Maoist term, if you want. In the 1950s, they talked about common prosperity. Please join the collectives for common prosperity. But when it came up again after, the, say, the 19-party Congress, there were all kinds of interpretations of that. And that's not unusual for China. China quite often brings out these big terms and then the detail has to be filled out by, by a, a debate among, among party members. Some party members took it very left-wing type of approach. Yes, this is the end of the market. It's the end of capitalism. We don't, we're no longer in the first phase of socialism. We have to control the private sector. But others said, no, no, this is more about building up the safety net. Xi Jinping himself has come out and said, look, we don't want this Western-style uh, welfare state with, with tax and spend and because uh, it will make people lazy and it will undermine productive forces. So what I think the current interpretation is, is, okay, we need to make sure that everybody can engage in an economy that is continues to develop. So everybody who can work should work and we should encourage them to work. We should help them to get work. We should get industries to places where there's not enough jobs and, and we should get the services level of government in places that have fallen behind to get that up. So that's the new socialist countryside, the revitalization of the rural areas. So those type of measures that should in principle then help productivity of people that are fallen behind. But it's not the spending on the social safety net. And to some extent, it's quite surprising because part of the social safety net, such as rural pensions or, or say, the lack of unemployment insurance for migrant workers, which is, you know, one third of the workforce, is really quite, quite surprising. And it would actually help China's uh, goals in terms of a more consumption-driven demand in the, in the economy if some of that were to be strengthened. So... Uh, You haven't heard that much the term anymore. It's been de-emphasized in, in, in recent years. And I think in part it reflects A, the quite negative reaction on the term of private businesses, but B, also that China hasn't figured out what exactly that should mean. Again, that's not new. Uh, Deng Xiaoping came up with the moderately prosperous society as the very big common sort of socioeconomic goal 20 years before that was achieved officially in 2021. Uh, and only over time did it get more meat on that term. So I expect in the next couple of years to 
get more information on what China actually means to achieve with that term. And I think to, to the point of the, the Deng Xiaoping quote, and going back to Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping is also one of the famous instances where common prosperity is mentioned. People remember very clearly the beginning of the quote, let some get rich first. They forget the second half, which is, and then together we will achieve common prosperity. <laughs> uh, and it's the same, the same terminology that Xi Jinping uses when talking about common prosperity. But I, I have a bit of a theory about this, and I'm curious to hear Bert's opinion about it, <laughs> that common prosperity, uh, I think you're right that initially there was a lot of backlash, and so maybe they stepped back from it. But I wonder if it is a useful rhetorical space for Xi Jinping to set out as if moving forward they can't keep growth up, they can't keep an economic baseline up, that this becomes a rhetorical platform to kind of fall back to that if we can't achieve growth and maybe we can't even achieve some of the tech self-reliance that we want, the legitimacy of the party can fall back not on economic growth but on economic redistribution. So so I, I agree with you that it is, it's a rhetorical device also to if you want to mobilize people for a new direction that she and his allies want to take the economy in. So yes, because uh, there will be losers of that approach as well and, and some people won't be able to thrive in that technology-driven society that that china currently imagines and so having this this goal as common prosperity will help support the overall direction that the government wants to take in response to the struggling economy the leadership has announced a series of measures which seem to indicate a return to pragmatism what does this pragmatism mean for his vision for china's economy Yeah. Uh, first, looking at the measures themselves, um, the measures are, I don't want to say completely marginal, but marginal is probably a closer description of them than, than anything else. That whether it's the measures in support of the private sector, the creation of a new NDRC office to promote private enterprise, or the 24 measures that came out to promote foreign investment, I think when you look at the details of these, first, a lot of these promises have been made time and time again, um, and little little has materialized in terms of true reform. But second is that I think we may have reached a point where the sentiment from an investor sentiment perspective and a consumer sentiment perspective um, has become so weak over the last few years that you you cannot meaningfully improve those sentiments other than at the margins. You know, some of the measures for foreign investment talk about new definitions for what defines a product that is made in China for public procurement. That might move the compass needle a little bit for, you know, some medical device and pharmaceutical companies that do public procurement in China. But the vast majority of companies, they look at a lot of these things and they say, these are already in the foreign investment law. And the foreign investment law was passed a few years ago and they haven't materialized. And it is a reminder as well that the economy is more than the economic policy that a government puts in. Governments have a certain amount of ability to kind of steer things on the sides. But once sentiment gets too low, unless you embark on really, really meaningful reform or something dynamic in the economy really shifts, it's hard to take these kind of smaller measures to try to achieve that result. And, and ultimately, I think as far as this, this idea of pragmatism that you mentioned, or sometimes this is billed as like a return to pragmatism after the, the kind of madness of the last few years. And I, I disagree with that assessment that, that some hold because 
pragmatism to me in Xi Jinping's mind is a matter of timing and of tone. It's a, okay, at this exact moment, it's maybe not best for me to continue to push my more geopolitical approach to the political economy of the country. We need to slow things down. We need to change the tone a little bit, strengthen investor and consumer sentiment. But I don't think Xi Jinping's vision has deviated from where it was the last couple of years. And I think a lot of business people and maybe even a lot of consumers are starting to get onto that, that Xi Jinping has not backed off of these measures. He has put them in place and kind of kept them in place, achieved some of his strategic goals, and then the rhetoric and the timing kind of slows down a bit. But I don't think this is indicative of a retreat from Xi Jinping's economic thought and a return to you know more of a Jiang Zemin era kind of reform period. China's integration to the world following the accession to the World Trade Organization was a boost for productivity globally and a major catalyst for China's domestic economy. We are now entering a new era of globalization, a world in which China aims to be at the center. In your view, Jacob, how is globalization changing and what does this change mean for China's development path? Yeah, so the the return to the or the movement to the the center of the global economy is in Beijing's mind the return to the center of the global economy. Um, this is the classic rhetoric that you get from the CCP. China was at the center of the world's economy, and then the century of shame and humiliation happened, and then the CCP has a hundred years to achieve the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And from a globalization perspective, that means China back at the center of the global economy, back at the center of global innovation. And obviously, if Beijing is able to achieve those goals, that will have a lot of implications for globalization. I don't think it means a as much of a complete breakdown of globalization. Some the way some people will sometimes posit that you know if China has more of a say, or if it has a even a more dominant role in global institutions, that that means that like it'll completely break down the WTO or the UN or things like this. China is, I think, to a certain degree revisionist, but it's more editing the things that are there and having more of a say in it than it is completely smashing the entire system. And to a certain degree, China should have more of a role in setting some of these global norms and standards. It is a major power. Like It, it would be absurd if in a different world, let's say Europe or the United States were the ones on the rise um, and they weren't given a seat at the table to add their voice to rulemaking. But as, as to whether China will get there or not, and how the ecosystem around China is changing as it pursues this strategy, I think we're entering a phase of kind of patchwork globalization. There's a lot of talk of mini-lateralism that you'll, you'll have instead of more multilateral global approaches or even attempts at a global level to solve certain problems, it'll be more what countries can we get on the same page on a given topic and we'll take whoever we can get. But certainly, as far as economic and technological globalization goes, from China's perspective, the big change is that the United States is already really sharpening the restrictions uh, on access to American markets and, more importantly, to American technologies. And it's getting more allies on board, of course. Um, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, they already have measures. They're just more quiet about it. <laughs> um, and then uh, the big question is how, when if Europe will get involved on more offensive measures. Um, so not just creating defensive tools to mitigate some of the distortions coming out of China, but will we reach a point where there's 
a breakdown in certain areas of trade because of restrictions that Europe imposes or breakdowns in technology flows because Europe creates more offensive tools for outbound investment or export controls and things like this. So it's going to be really difficult for China to gain that central position um, if it's getting blocked out of the biggest export markets and the biggest technology providers. But if any one country could do it, it's probably China. Following the third plenum in the year 2013, many false expectations were made about China's reform path. What should we look for in this third plenum this year? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things that I would be looking for that I think would be good for the Chinese economy, but I have really no view as to whether they would actually appear. I th from what I hear in China, the focus will be a lot on the further spelling out on how China wants to drive innovation and productivity in its economy. I believe that a lot of the difficulties that are currently here, and I agree with Jacob, a lot of them are expectations driven, that policy package should also be used to turn around some of the expectations of the private sector and households so that they have confidence in the economy that indeed it can still grow with four or five percent a year and that would in turn drive spending behavior and would in turn drive investment behavior of companies. What should be part of that is uh, in part a, a fiscal reform that really retools the whole fiscal system to make it more useful for macroeconomic management. Currently, that is very strongly tied to the property sector, which is not a growth sector for the future. Local governments are carrying a lot of the burden on macroeconomic stability. That requires a lot of fiscal changes. Second, even though I won't oppose Xi Jinping's thoughts on the welfare state, but a strengthening of the pension system, a strengthening of the health system, a strengthening of the social welfare system is simply commensurate with the goals that China has. And that would then strongly bring a, a much stronger consumption-driven growth in the, in the future. The third is indeed this much more broader, the, the role of the state in the economy. Because I think part of the uncertainty that currently, especially private investors and foreign investors have, is that it's not clear to what extent this will all be very state-driven, this future of China's economy. And as long as that's not clear, people are holding back. So bringing that clarity and bringing the right balance between the state role and the role of the non-state sector uh, is, in my view, very important. And that has to do with state enterprise reforms. It has to do with the, the policy measures that would be used to implement this state vision of more productivity, innovation-led economy, and whether that is still compatible with international norms or not. I hope they will be, because that would actually be helpful in continued integration of China in the world economy. Yeah, I, I think Bert has very kind of perfectly put out the, the kind of details um, that would would indicate you know kind of positive and negative developments. But so what, what I'll add to that is I think the context is going to be really important because if you look at the 2013 third plenum that comes out, you know, uh, and I think it was either you, Bert, or someone else at the conference said that, you know, all the right people were reading through the, the decision document and they got to uh, market forces, da, 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 a decisive role, and they said, okay, and they dropped the documents and that's all they took away from it. And they didn't read, you know, the next few lines. <laughs> but 
So that that's the first thing is make sure to read the whole document. But second off, I kind of understand why a lot of people may have come to that reading and to that interpretation because of the context of 2013 compared to the context of 2023. And even going beyond, you know, the the macro numbers of what what the growth rate is. 2013 happened in a context where 10 years before Jiang Zemin is on his way out, he he you know puts forward the three represents he makes sure that business people can now become members of the Communist Party, which is a pretty revolutionary idea. You let the capitalists join the Communist Party <laughs> to become important parts of the policymaking apparatus. And then for 10 years um, under Hu Jintao, you have a greater amount of influence from these entrepreneurs and business owners and such. You have the WTO accession, what, 12 years before the, the last or the 2013 plenum. And so China is still kind of riding high on this wave of entry into the WTO. Things are looking better. They're looking a bit more market forces oriented and such. And so in that context, I get why people took priority of some of the, those terms um, because the momentum from the previous 10 and 20 years was really carrying through. But Xi Jinping has very systematically over the last 10 years, you know, cleared out a lot of the business people that are involved in politics, has created firewalls. Um, between these, he's reversed a lot of those reforms. And it's taking place in a very different context where the amount of political and party and state direction and control over the economy has improved drastically or increased drastically. And as such, even if you were to copy and paste whatever was in the 2013 plenum and paste that into the 2023 plenum, I think people will read it very differently. Um, and they should read it differently because we're in a very different time. And we're also not in a period where we have a transition of leadership um, with the top leader where we're going to have to get to know this new guy named Xi Jinping. And is he a reformer? Is he a conservative? Where does he fall in line with that? We know who we're dealing with now. We have a very good sense of it. And I think that that context changes a lot about how we'll read into it. So thank you so much for your insights. I really appreciate this a lot. Your time, your your thoughts, and give me a lot of uh, facts and topics to think about furthermore for myself thank you so much for having been here and um yeah thank you thanks for having me yeah thanks uh thanks for letting us join i hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast you can find and read the report the party knows best aligning economic actors with china's strategic goals on our website links to the report and the research profiles of our guests will be posted in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.